All right. Welcome to APS Radio, episode 22. I've got two great friends with me tonight joining me. We got Brandon Dryman, Indianapolis Firefighters 416. I always forget that number. <laughs> and I also right. have Dave Gerald from Columbus Division of Fire. So these are two guys that I absolutely love, that I lean on a ton. They're kind of my phone a friend. And I'm glad to actually have them on the show because we're going to talk about a pretty important topic. We're going to talk about really the fact that the three of us are in the business of helping our peers, our own department members. But there's also a cost with that. You know, heavy is the crown, absolutely. So first of all, welcome, you guys. I'll shut up for a minute and uh, let you guys talk. I guess to, I should say a question first and set you up. How about that? Sure. We are, you know, this is for our peer support coordinators, our wellness coordinators, our peers. Um, let's just talk about the hardships of our positions. So either one of you, I, I'll, I'll leave it to you guys and you can take it from there. Well, I can start off a little bit. You know, I've been in a leadership role uh, within my unit for about five years now. And I think the, the biggest thing that I maybe sort of anticipated but didn't really realize the extent to which it would happen or a lot of the after hours things that go on um, and that's pretty tough uh, we really we preach the value of having good boundaries and really setting those boundaries up and making sure that you know when you're off you're off and and that sort of thing and I think that's important but sort of like we have out in the companies at two in the morning somebody needs to pick up the phone and sometimes it doesn't feel like enough to just say we'll call 911 or you know to have another person answer the phone and that's been a, a big adjustment and something that I really had to deal with over the last five years that you know on vacations or whatever's going on you got to pick up the phone and maybe you don't have to maybe that's why we're having this discussion maybe there are ways around that but for me that that's been a real difficulty because whether it's codependence or whatever it may be I want to be there for other people. I want to pick up the phone, but that, that comes at a cost of certainly some family time. It comes at a cost of personal time, uh, sleep, a lot of really important things that we need to have waiting for us after this career is over. Um, so I guess that's kind of where I would start it is a lot of the after hours stuff really set me back a little bit. Dave, do you have the same issues? Yeah. So thanks for bringing that up, Brandon. That's one thing that really weighs heavy on me is the outside of normal business hours activities. One thing that I'm doing is setting up um, a better system with our platoon staffed peers so that they can handle the really big stuff. Any emergencies, I really want them to call me and my team, but I really want to avoid answering the phone after hours because we have to model, as wellness leaders, we have to model the behavior that we expect from the people that we serve. So I'm trying to be a leader in that direction as well. Um, it's hard because I do want to make sure, I want to help, I want to make sure our members get connected. But those after hours things really weigh on me. But I've been setting up a, some harder boundaries lately within the last six months. I've had a, personally a lot of difficulties with that. I feel, and I know it shouldn't be my responsibility, but I want to answer just in case that call comes in and you know what call I'm referring to, I need to answer it. The, the heaviness of what would happen if I didn't answer it and something happened uh, would be just way too much for me. So I have felt compelled to be on call all the time. So I, I, I need to kind of be like you are, Dave. I know in my mind, I want to do more of a rotation where just really one person is truly on call and like where we have, where we share a cell phone or even a pager. You guys probably had a pager, didn't you? Oh yeah. Front pocket <laughs> clipped in, you know it. Oh, Dave, no, you missed that. No. <laughs> good, good stuff. So just the idea of, rotating that so not one person is taking a beating we're all doing a rotation and uh i think that's more of a sustainable way moving forward that's what i'm pitching at least yeah for sure um it, it not having those boundaries really early in my wellness career i had always been a peer i've been in the 
kind of on the team and, and rose to a leadership position in our peer team over 15 years. But then I became a full-time wellness coordinator in 2019. And about a year into it, uh, I started owning all those stories I was hearing. And it, it really led me to seek my own help and started my own second journey in this. So yeah, I'm a little bit harder with my boundaries right now and I'm, I'm better for it, but I'm also lucky and I'm very grateful that I have a, a pretty robust peer team that can handle some big stuff if I'm not at the office. So thanks to my peers out there on company. Nice. Um, you kind of mentioned hearing everybody else's stuff. I've seemed to notice that if I go to a different department, if I don't know them, I do much better, whether it's debriefing talking to an individual it's cool i don't have that personal relationship however our clientele which is usually our members it's a lot harder it's personal some of these are our friends and we have relationships with and that secondary trauma i don't know about you guys but that has absolutely been real for me i've taken a lot of that stuff on and kind of spiral down with some of them myself any similarities to you guys? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's what, probably one of the other huge factors is what you're taking home with you. And it's natural. I mean, we're, we're, we're in this type of role because we have a lot of empathy and that comes with a lot of risks as well. It's, you can't do this job without it, but it also exposes you to internalizing the things that you hear. Also, you know, because of the people we're helping, because we're close to them, because we feel a stake in the outcome of their cases, when those cases don't go the way we hoped, it's really easy to internalize that. You know, we've had members um, who've died by suicide, and and then you think, well, what does that mean for our program? What does that mean for me as a leader? What did I do wrong? What could I have done better? Are people going to call anymore? Like all those things start weighing on you. Um, and that's a pretty extreme case, but it's certainly day in, day out, you know, trying to cover all your bases and then you get another story and another story and another story. And, and it does, it builds up and that's where self-care becomes so important and boundaries again, knowing that I need to, to hand this case off right now. I'm not in a good spot. Um, but having the, the practice, the experience to do that is hard. It's still hard for me. It's really hard. Um, but that's the reality that you're right. The secondary trauma um, is just as bad as, as being there in the first place. Yeah, I agree. I, uh, just this week, I know people called in and were seeking assistance from uh, my team in my office. And when they got me directly, I said, hey, I'm not running exactly 100%, but I have a couple peers on my team that are, are willing to, to listen and to hear your story. So I've been able to shuffle them off. Uh, again, that wasn't easy for me, but I'm, I'm a lot better than I was. It's like I said, that first year doing this peer support was hard, but I don't feel like I'm owning those stories anymore. It's just the daily, the daily grind of it. So the boundaries have helped quite a bit, but passing it off is really important because again, we have to, as wellness leaders, we have to model the behavior that we want others to do. That's absolutely true. I, one of the things that's worked for me recently, like going on vacations and spending family time, I used to not be able to not answer my phone, but now just changing my voicemail, just letting people know hey, I'm unavailable. Here's the alternate number for you to call uh, and being okay with that, like letting go of the reins, right? That, that's another one of those things that can be really hard for us. We get in these positions because we're good at what we do. We're good at managing things. And sometimes that comes with a, maybe a bit too much, um, control or wanting to control things. So, but that's been a huge thing for me. And I encourage other people who are wellness leaders, peer leaders, whatever, when you're going out of town, when you're taking that vacation, get with somebody else on your team that you trust, ask them to be the point person while you're gone. And no matter how badly you want to answer your phone, let voicemail, take it. And that person can get the information they need from your message to call the next in line. Um, give yourself that space. It's important. It's great. I, yeah, I remember being in Hawaii and answering the phone and helping people. 
And my wife just looked at me like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> I'm like, you're in Hawaii. Um, you know, kind of what you guys were saying about handing the team off. Uh, I ended up doing that in August. And I still haven't taken it back. And I probably won't is the reality. I took on so much secondary stuff. And it just, I mean, it brought me down to the point which I ended up spending 40 days at the Center of Excellence. Um, so this is a, a really important issue to me because I don't want that to happen to anybody else. I, I want to counter that beforehand. So giving it up to somebody is absolutely the right thing to do, whether you have a rotation or whatever, but you need to be able to take care of yourself. And I see now a lot of the, the things that I definitely could have done better in hindsight. Because um, I'll also say too, and excuse my tangent, uh, I really held off on getting the help I needed. I really felt that I was supposed to be the guy that everybody came to to help. And it, the optics of it wouldn't look good if I was a mess and I was getting help myself. You know, how can I help others when I don't even have my own stuff um, squared away? And uh, I just want to make sure that if you're in those positions, who cares what anybody else says? You know you need to take care of yourself. Don't worry about any of that stuff. Concentrate on you and everything else will fall in the, should fall how it should be, you know, once you take care of yourself. You guys agree? Any of the, any me too's? Oh yeah, for sure, Jim. So what you're describing is what I also see and hear in um, the police, fire, dispatchers that I talk to. Um, we're all afraid of looking bad right? <laughs> um, our egos get in the way because I want to look good. I want to win and I want to dominate. And it looks, it can be perceived as looking bad if I go seek help. But what I've realized in this business is that asking for help, keying the mic, calling the May Day is the greatest act, the act of strength that there is. So to my firefighters out there, hey, get the help you need because you're going to be a better, stronger, more complete firefighter a more complete paramedic. You're going to be a better chief, a leader on your division. If you get the help that you need, quit covering up, get the help. And like Jim said, do it. It's worth it. You're worth it. Yeah. And I mean, I've been there too, Jim, um, 100% what you described. It's like, it's funny, you know, when I got sober 10 years ago, before I really got involved in peer support, I would walk into meetings and people every meeting I went to, somebody would tell my story. It's like, wow, how do, how do we all have the same story? And then I hear you describing that here. And it's like, that's, that's exactly it. Like when I've struggled thinking, well, it's going to look bad if the person who is supposed to have all this under control is having problems. But then one day it hit me, all of our pure fitness people still work out. You know, it's not like, oh my goodness, those, those fitness people just can't get it right. They're in there lifting weights again. They're conditioning their bodies. Like it's the same it's the same thing. These are physical issues that are going on in us. And sometimes one, we have to keep ourselves conditioned. So we have to do the things to keep ourselves healthy, but just like fitness people get injured. So can we, the exposures that we have, the, the things we deal with cause injuries. They're just perceived differently at large than straining a muscle or hurting your rotator cuff, whatever it may be. But just as Dave has said, it's up to us to model the good behavior what I found is it's just the opposite. When people see somebody within a unit for wellness, whether it's peer support, whatever, when they see those people get help, I think it actually increases faith in that system that, okay, these, these cats are putting their money where their mouth is, and they're utilizing the same resources that they're referring our people to. Um, so they must be reliable. There must be something to it if, if these people are going to these resources themselves. And I think when you do, not being shy about it, we know how important testimonials can be from the people out in the companies whenever they have a good outcome and they want to tell their story we encourage that as leaders we need to do that too um, and not be ashamed that we had to get help uh, but be vocal about it let people know that I, I struggled too and even in this position I've struggled and it's okay because I knew what steps to take and I took them and I got help and things are better now you can do the same thing people recover all the time uh, and I think that can give a lot of hope to people who may otherwise be, you know, just like we are afraid to reach out for help, but the more positive models we can give them, the better. Right on, Brandon. 
Yeah, ahead, for Dave. sure. Yeah, I um, I have no fear of reaching out for help. And I, in fact, I've put some things in place for me and my team where uh, I can't hide from anyone either. So not only can I not, I'm willing to ask, but I also can't hide. So I have accountability partners spread all through my life. Um, my whole team at work, uh, we do a check-in with each other. So my my wellness team, each morning we report to each other and we do it kind of like in a battery percentage way. Like, hey, what's your uh, emotional battery today? 80%, 90%, cool. If it's more like 40 to 60%, hey, why is that? And what are you doing about it? And we do that each day with our team, uh, our 40 hour team. And I encourage all, all of our first responders to do that. It's, it's a really good way to be in touch with what's, what's going on in your head. Plus we can carry the load for those other folks that aren't running right. And someday I'm not running right and they'll help me. And I'm, again, we're servants, right? So we, we think we're, we're afraid to look bad and get help, but really the people around us, just like Brandon said, are really inspired by us getting the help and seeking that recovery and becoming a better, complete, healed person. Because we want to help, people want to help you in your recovery. <laughs> that, that's the big myth out there. I mean, did you find that, Brandon? Absolutely. 100%. Yes. Yeah, a lot of people feel like they're alone, but once they open up and become vulnerable, you find there's a lot of players on your team, a lot of coaches on your team. So open up to others and, and storytelling. You touched on that too. The, the storytelling is so essential to this business. Being open and telling your story is going to inspire others because really there's only one story. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, you know what? And, I want to build on that too. So thank you. I, in my head again, I, I wasn't, I wasn't in the right place. And I even had the fear of when I came back, how is I going to be perceived? Is are people going to, you know, are my coworkers going to be standoffish? Don't want nothing to do with me. Think I'm crazy. Think I'm weird, whatever it may be. And that wasn't the case. It was the exact opposite. I felt the love. I still feel the love. Uh, and they genuinely worried about me and were thankful that I was okay. So that, that whole stigma, even, even us, you should know better. Like I felt trapped to it. Yeah. Now, Brandon, you mentioned earlier without saying it, you were essentially talking about resilience, resiliency skills or coping skills. Let's touch on that because that's one thing we can do to try to navigate all this stuff and, and still stay, say, stay somewhat sane. Yeah. I mean, I think we know that we're, we're going to endure storms as part of this work. Like there, we can't make it so that this position doesn't hurt. We can't make it so that we're completely impervious to, to the storms of life. But that's where resilience comes in and, and developing a proactive mindset that I'm not going to wait until I'm hurting to take some action. So that's where the conditioning comes in. And there are so many things we can do. Um, some of the things that have worked really well for me is monitoring my sleep and, and really getting good sleep, having a set schedule, even on weekends and not wavering from that. Um, I like to get up before the sun. I have things that I like to do, um, like meditation and yoga. Uh, those have been really important to me um, as far as centering my, my mind, connecting me to my breath, things that would have been way too crunchy granola for me 15 years ago. Um, now that I've done them, it's like, wow, I can see why these practices are thousands of years old because they work. Um, but sleep is important. Exercise is important to me. Um, talking, you know, making that appointment with whether it's your EAP, whoever you trust, and it can even be your physician, but making that appointment to talk to somebody when you feel it building up or just proactively once a year, getting out, making that appointment just to do a check-in. We do it for the rest of our body with our physical every year. We need to do it with our mind as well. That's proactive. That catches things early. Um, there's just so many different things we can be doing. I'm, I'm curious to hear um, what you all do, but, but I, for me, the, the big ones are sleep, meditation, yoga. Um, those are probably the, the really big ones for me. I know Dave's a runner. <laughs> Maybe once upon a time I was a runner, not currently. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
you know, resiliency is born out of my daily practice. And it's what I do every day with discipline is going to keep me resilient. Because just like Brandon said, the storm's coming. And it's like trying to predict the weather. It, all the conditions are such that the storm could hit us and hit hard, but it may just pass over, but we don't know. So we have to be prepared for it. What this resiliency does and what our daily practice does is give us that PPE, the raincoat, if you will, for the day the storm comes. And we just pull it out, put the raincoat on and drive on. And we're more resilient when we do. So my practice, um, definitely the foundation of it is meditation. I don't do it twice a day every day, but I have some mindful practice every day, whether it's um, a reading, whether it's a dedicated um, specific meditation, it might be uh, watching the sunset, <laughs> going for a drive in the car, some mindful practice. So that's my foundation. Building on that, I use gratitude. Um, when I get kind of sour or get down, I'll try to think of three things that I'm grateful for. And sometimes you got to dig deep, but they're there because it can be as simple as when I turn the faucet on, I get cold, clean water that comes at me. There's a lot of people in this world that don't have that. And I'm lucky enough that I do. So gratitude is, is the next thing. Uh, accountability is probably my third. So those are the big three for me. Having my accountability partners that I've given them permission to call me out when I'm not running right, or if I'm uh, acting a fool, they're like, hey, Dave, cool it. Something's not right with you. And I have to respect that because I trust them. That's my big three for, for my daily practice or my resiliency. That's great, Dave. Thank you for sharing. I think all three of us, I know all three of us love the meditation. I've been doing that for a while now. Mm -hmm. um, goodness, beyond that, I've really gotten into journaling. That started at Center of Excellence for me. And also, um, and I don't want to make this show ever about religion, but I actually found that there too. And that I think has helped me a lot and actually give stuff up and let it go and really give up control, which has been an amazing feeling. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad you said that, Jim. What we know about resilient people is there's always a spiritual component and whatever that is for you. And it doesn't have to be anything traditional, but it just has to mean something to you that you can give yourself and your spirit up to something greater than yourself. And I know that was, that's what made me turn also. Um, the programs that I went to in my journey helped me a hundred percent with that. And that was the game changer for me. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned that too, Jim, because it's, we do, I think, sometimes equate, particularly in the West, you know, religion and spirituality as being the same thing. And, and they really, as you said, they're not. They're not. They can be, I think, on if that's how you approach it. But, you know, we look at that component of what is it that's bigger than me? How am I a part of something bigger than myself? Is for me kind of that, you know, what's my why? What's my purpose? When you start answering those questions, I think that's on the other side of that is spirituality. And just like Dave said, I mean, it's, it's been studied. You look at um, Resilience by the book by Southwick and Charney. Um, they looked at one of the key components for resilience is having some type of spiritual life. Um, before, when I was really struggling with, with alcohol and anxiety and depression and all that, I was very religious, but I was just going through the motions. I didn't have any spirituality attached to that. I didn't feel anything outside of myself. Um, once I became more spiritual, things got a lot better. And I think Dave hit on it too, when he used the word daily practice, and that's very deliberate, right? Daily practice. Um, and there may be times when you're, you're too sick, or maybe you're too tired to do some things. But don't let that be the regular excuse. It's called a daily practice for a reason. Um, motivation is, is wonderful. I love motivation. But motivation will not get you through your life. Discipline will get you through your life. And that's where the daily practice is so important. Whether you're tired, sick, it's raining out, you just don't feel like doing it. The days you don't feel like doing your daily practice are the days, in my opinion, when it's most important that you do it. 
um, because that means you can you can follow that routine when things are going rough. Um, so thank you for saying daily practice, Dave, because that that's important. That this become part of your routine. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I did not have a daily practice, and I found myself in a very low, dark place. And some great people around me showed me how to do it differently, and I'm grateful for that. Very good. Awesome stuff. So, Dave, I don't know if you remember, but the first time I got to go up and hang out with you guys in the old headquarters high school craziness, <laughs> you you mentioned, you told me. I mean, I remember this perfectly. You said, give it six months, or you're going to be begging for help because you're not going to be able to keep up with the pace. <laughs> Brother, you were you were right on. So I know both of you guys really were instrumental in implementing your programs and actually getting some help. How, how did you go about building your programs to where you did have some assistance to kind of take some of this pressure off you? Well, um, the universe knows sometimes, Jim. I can't say that I knew exactly what I was doing because I didn't. Um, I was charged with starting this office but very shortly after that, a friend of mine who, who was seeking his own help, but who also had suggestions said, hey, I'm willing to jump in with you. And I'm really grateful that that guy showed up for me. Uh, my buddy, Matt, really helped me get this thing going. And because he was slightly ahead of me in his own journey, he showed me a different way. Um, I'm lucky, grateful that my fire administration was able to organically build this program and they trusted me enough that I said, Hey, I need some help. They made it happen. And I know a lot of people won't get that. Um, just lucky. Um, but keep saying it, keep saying it. You need help because it's worth it. Take a look at our fleet management systems in our agencies. Trucks get annual PM. If something breaks, we just go down and get it fixed. There's no questions asked generally. Our people should get the same, should get the same treatment right? True. Yeah. We're, we're an investment too. <laughs> hey, trucks don't, don't do anything. It's the people on them that do everything. So let's take care of the right resource. That's right. How did you end up uh, kind of building your program, Brandon? We had both on, on the, the labor and the management side, a lot of support from the get-go. Um, we had had a a CISM program in place for 20 plus years within our agency. Uh, it was all volunteer, you know, right around, I don't know, probably six years ago, we shifted into more of a peer support model. Um, so we had to start recruiting some different people. Some people on the CISM side didn't really want to stay for peer support. I get it. You know, I, I don't certainly don't think they're mutually exclusive, but there's some understanding issues at the outset that people didn't exactly know what was going on as we made that transition. So we, we did have a lot of support already because it wasn't foreign to our local or our, our city agency that behavioral health was important and, and we already had some of that support. So then it, it became a matter of recruiting. Uh, how do we get people interested? Um, and we started off just by asking officers, every officer in our agency, is there somebody within your company that you think would make a good peer supporter? And once we had that list, we reached out to all those people and asked them, would you be interested in talking to us about becoming a peer supporter? So that's how we did it the first time. Um, and our local gets all of its talent, so to speak. It gets all of its peers from the fire departments within the local. So the local itself doesn't recruit anybody. All of the recruiting is done at the department level. And we trust that the coordinators within those municipalities know the people that they're picking and, and we just serve as an umbrella of support through the local. Um, so that, that's a bit of a digression, but that explains why on, at the city level, why we recruited all of our own peers. We didn't do that through the local. As time went on, I wanted to, to get our peers paid. Uh, I know some agencies have shied away from that. They like to have volunteer peers. My view is that after the fourth edition of the Wellness Fitness Initiative, peer support was codified in that document that it was important for an all-around wellness program. My view was we pay our peer fitness people uh, a stipend, a stack pay every year. So we need to pay our peer supporters the same thing. They're within the same document. One's just as important as the other. So if we're paying our peer fitness people, we need to pay our peer supporters. 
Um, so we got that done, but once we did that, the merit law kicked in and the merit law defines very specifically, you know, we have to have open recruitment, we have to do interviews and has who has to be on that interview board. So now that's kind of laid out for us under, um, under the merit law, how we recruit for the peer support program. Um, but leading off, I think that's one of the big things that a, a coordinator needs to figure out is, am I going to do invite only and risk missing out on some people who might be a good fit, but really tailoring the program with the people I want? Or am I going to do kind of an open recruiting, um, which can be overwhelming, but you're more likely to catch the diamonds that you may have missed if you just recruited only the people that you knew about. And I don't think there's a, a good answer one way or the other for that. I think it's trial and error, and maybe one time you do it one way, the next time you do it the other, and see which one fits your agency best. Um, but I think that is, that's an important thing to weigh out as you start to build a program, um, is who's going to be on your team, and how are you going to recruit them, open or invite only, or in our case, you know, is merit law going to apply, and that's already been decided for you. Yeah, that's very interesting. So Columbus... Division of Fires had a very robust CISM peer team since the um, late 80s. So it's been around a long time. We have organically transitioned kind of to a hybrid system where we do CISM where it's important and then peer support. Same people, we just cross-trained them. In a, in a perfect world, what I said to my folks at, in smaller agencies around Central Ohio who were starting a team, I said, I would do a survey and nominate seek nominations from people in your division. Who would you trust as a peer supporter and pick five people or so and see what names float to the top because peer support is based on trust. And if there's no trust from the membership, it's not really gonna be an effective program. So that's always my advice. I never had the chance to do that. Our team's been in place well before I was employed, but that's a really good strategy. Um, Brandon also had some good suggestions too. Um, I'm cautious about doing open invites because there's a lot of folks who want to help that maybe aren't ready to help, but their coping mechanism is helping. So caution on that. I was one of those people. Ask me how I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, you know, I did the, uh, I did the open enrollment, you know, if you're interested, reach out. And then I took, I knew how many numbers we were going to fill on our next class. and the the actual peers that are already on the team got to vote and so i i looked at their input and that's really how for the most part we were able to pick who's going to come on board and and be the team players uh, i can tell you for from my perspective i really like having a variety i call it a menu i i've got somebody for about everybody uh -huh. you know i i mean you should be able to look at my list and figure out somebody on there that you'll get along with and you trust. That was kind of my whole idea. I didn't want, and I also will tell you, I didn't want all like baby face, good guys, you know, that's, I have some of them. They're, they're great, but I really, really valued the guys and gals who've been in dark times, who've had struggles and came out on the other side. I think they have a lot of value to your members. Oh yeah, I call them wounded healers. They're the best because those folks have been there and they can say, yeah, me too. Here's what I did. Here's what was helpful. And here was, here's something that wasn't helpful. Yeah. And I, th I, th I think also those people who, who have that street credit, one, I think buy some credibility for your program, but also if you if you've struggled and you've recovered, you know how to help other people without making it about your story. Uh, and I, that's really important that I can help you as somebody in recovery. I have that insight. We have that similar lived experience, but I also know it's not about me. I know when and how to share my story to motivate somebody, uh, but I don't do it just blindly. Some people I work with never know my history necessarily. Um, but I think that comes with having struggled through things and knowing what worked for you and knowing how to share your story in very strategic ways um, as a huge benefit to people. Perfect. All right, next topic here. And, and you guys have kind of danced around this a little bit. Personally, I had difficulty with management. I had a vision. I knew 
how much my members were struggling. And I know you guys do too. And it was really hard to share that kind of stuff because of everything being confidential. I mean, yes, you can show analytics, but like you can't really tell them what's going on. You're barred from doing that. So it makes things difficult. What have you guys done as far as dealing with management and trying to get on the same page and, and work together, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. I mean, I, I can start it off. We, we have a tremendous relationship with, with our administration. Uh, like I said, we have a lot of support and that's how our program got started was from the top down, which is a, not something that a lot of agencies have developing that relationship, you know, there's always the concern, I think, within agencies is, oh, if we have this, if you build it, people are going to come and now people are going to be off sick all the time and our overtime costs are going to go through the roof and, and then administrators get scared of it. I think it's educating that, one, maybe people are going to miss some work, but at least they're going to be missing to get themselves help rather than calling in sick three or four times a year for 20 years and backfill in those spots for 20 years. We can get somebody the help they need up front and stop it right then. Uh, we've been able to develop a really good relationship with our HR. Um, and if, if we go to HR and say, we need this person put on extended sick leave, there's really no questions asked. They know if we're, if our program is requesting that, it's serious and, and that's how we take care of business. Um, I think probably one of the biggest keys is to educate your administrators on what to expect. Um, this isn't an overnight miracle. It's not a six month miracle. For us, this was a years long process to get the trust of the company level firefighter, to get the trust of the officers, the battalion chiefs, the shift commanders. That took years and years and years of work on the part of our program to see that people are getting better, to see that the sky's not falling when people get help. It's actually a good thing. Uh, it helps our investment, like you said, Jim. Now we have shift commanders calling us and saying, I'm concerned about this person, or a battalion chief will call and say, hey, we had a really bad run you guys might not have heard about. Um, can somebody check on this engine crew? They were there at, on the scene for a couple of hours, and I want to make sure they're okay. So I think the biggest thing is it takes time, and administrators need to realize that it, it is an investment, and it's going to take that time to start seeing results and being realistic about that. I think Sometimes we could get into trouble by trying to rush into it and administrations think, oh, well, you know, in, in six months, we're going to see how this program's working. No, you're not. Um, it's not going to happen that quickly. Um, and I think being realistic about that's important. Yeah. So I have struggled uh, with administration and it wasn't because they weren't supportive. Sometimes we just weren't speaking the same language. So one example where I struggled personally, and this is about me, um, I had some really good initiatives I wanted to put forth in our recruit training program. And I feel um, I had good documentation, good reason for it. And there were folks that were um, not for that. And it was very difficult and they said no. Um, I finally got an ally in one of our top administrators and he basically said, we're, we're ordering this to be implemented. And it took a, a, a bold act like that, an ally that I just showed the evidence to, and he acted with that direction. Very, again, very grateful. But the result of that, after that push, now everyone sees the value of it and it's become part of the standard now. And they're like, oh, how do we get these classes in? What can we rearrange to get mental fitness into our recruit curriculum? So it's, we're driving a big ship. And like Brandon said, it doesn't happen overnight. We're not going to get the, the quick win, but we are going to turn the ship slowly in the right direction. And over the long course, that one degree change over years is going to be a huge difference. So that's what I'm shooting for. Uh, leaders that are listening to this, Simon Sinek, The Infinite Game. Check that out. He's on YouTube. He's on TED Talks. He's everywhere. Check that guy out. We don't, we're not playing to win. We're playing to do it right. Awesome. Well said. Yes. So, um, you know, I'm sorry. I wanted to come back on one thing, Brandon, you said something about like HR administration might be worried that if we build this thing, they'll come and the floodgates. And I heard that too. I still hear that sometimes. And what I know about first responders 
we're strong uh, alpha type people who want to show up to work, who want to do the right thing, who want to win. And I can tell you that we do not pretend to be sick or hurt just to get out of something. That doesn't happen. That's a myth. What we do is we put a mask on and we come to work injured, hurt, and broken, and we still show up and do our job anyway. So all you fire administration leaders out there, what's the cost of your agency with those folks wearing a mask, not running right? Because that's what's going on. The myth, no one's milking the system. There may be one or two, okay, let's let those folks slide because there's a lot of people that are gonna get help by being open and letting people get the help they need. Yeah. And it's, and I think when we start to equate it with other systems we have in place, people can milk a back injury. People can fake all kinds of things if they really want to get off work, but we don't throw out that whole system or we're not afraid of that system because a few people may say that their back hurts when it really doesn't, because we know that the, the gains are much greater than the people who may play the system. And it's the same with this. You're exactly right, Dave. People in our, our business don't want to say, well, you know what? Hey, I'm really depressed. I'm going to stay home. Uh, we Just like you said, we will fight that uh, to our demise often. Uh, so people don't find that out. So people really aren't out faking it. You know, that's just can't be said enough. That's a really good point. Yeah. If I, I mean, how many knees, backs and shoulders are injured in our, in our line of work? And it's very normal for someone to take six or eight weeks off to heal that injury, to recover from that. They get rest, rehabilitation. They go see a specialist. Our brains need that same attention. If we get the rest and rehab, we're going to come back better, faster, stronger. So we just need to allow for that to happen. Interesting stuff. Do you guys, uh, I'd be interested in knowing on your departments, if a member goes to the IAFF Center of Excellence, is there any kind of leave set up for them any leave of benefits or are they just on their own time in uh at columbus for something like that they're going to be using their own sick time um i think there's value in people using their own time having skin in the game in their own recovery so i think there's value there i don't think anyone's been denied access to care just because they didn't have the time off work there's been some accommodation whether it's leave without pay or something because we do want people to get help and our leaders have um, signed up for that uh, there's another um, we've partnered with another agency that allows our folks to uh, kind of use their own time but um, they're available to go for instance like save a warrior our folks in columbus fire when they attend save a warrior they're using their own time, but our administrators always make sure they get the time off. They're not going to be not denied vacation or, or use of sick leave. And, and the other cool thing is they've really stepped up and said anybody who, who goes back to Shepherd um, goes on special duty. And I think that's a strong statement from Columbus Division of Fire. It says, hey, we're invested in the wellness of our members. That's awesome. Yeah. And we, we do the same with our people go there on sick time, but we have the ability if they have days in their vacation bank that they've stored up, they can pull from that. And, and just like Dave said, they're not going to say, well, we have too many people off that day. We can't let you use vacation. Um, we make that accommodation. Um, there are other, other vacation sharing we can do with people um, to make sure that people have time. Um, once somebody has exhausted all their sick days, uh, we have it within um, our system that the chief can request additional sick days. Um, through a process. Um, so we have never had an issue. And again, a big part of that comes back to having administrators who understand the value of getting our people healthy. Um, and that's, that's a key component to, to getting those accommodations put in place. That I, to hear that about Save a Warrior and, and coming back to Shepherd, and I mean, that is, that is a huge statement. Um, I'm really proud to hear that. Even though I'm not part of that agency, that's a remarkable thing. Good for good for Columbus. Yeah, um, I think because we've had so many members come through and such great success with it, we've really embraced that as an agency that's really helpful to our members. Absolutely, I know you have had a ton of guys and gals go there. 
Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, well, I probably don't want to say any of the numbers right here right now, but we've had a lot, <laughs> but we also are a force down there. We give back a lot. So we do service down there. We provide shepherds. We provide uh 12 step people for them. Yeah. It's a good partnership and I'm really grateful to have it. Absolutely. We have other partners too. It's not just save a warrior. Hopefully we'll get to, to the others because there's other great resources in Ohio. Absolutely. And you know, for you and me, sorry, Brandon, someday, hopefully, House Bill 308, which was signed and actually is the RPTS law, um, will actually go in effect. It'll be funded because right now it's a sitting and it's worthless at the moment. But that would take care of all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and the problem I've seen dealing with my guys, you know, a lot of times the ones that are really struggling, they don't have time. I mean, their, their time off is minimal because when they get something, they burn it. They're to that point. And then the thought of them possibly going without a paycheck, if they go away from 30 to 45 days, that is a deterrent to actually getting the help that they truly need. Um, because probably a lot of times their finances aren't good either. So they're paycheck by paycheck, they're sick time by sick time. And so they kind of just stuck. So that's, that's why I feel like from what I've seen with some of my guys and gals, it would be beneficial. Yeah. So, so there's that, um, then here's, you know, heavy is the crown. If our topic is that today, that also puts some burden on us wellness leaders to find some non-traditional or some alternatives to inpatient care. There could be some intensive outpatient care where people miss less work. And if we can vet those out in our local communities, that's another way. Very yeah. true. Yeah, that's, and we've, we've had to do that with people either. The biggest part has been finances. They just couldn't afford to invest in one being away, not having a paycheck, potentially part-time work, whatever it may be. They just, because of the, the situation they've got themselves into, couldn't leave. Um, so you're exactly right and say, well, at least we can start here and see how this goes. Um, and I think if that's what the person wants to do, then it's especially important to go with that. It has to be their plan, not mine. And if they're going to be that worried or concerned that they can't make ends meet when they're gone, how successful is that going to be if we try and push them that direction? Probably not going to be very successful. It needs to be their idea and their terms. Um, that's, you know, as far as Ohio folks, I think that's one of the true beauties of saw um, you know when I went through it uh, I was in the administration so it wasn't difficult for me to to make that happen but it's nice for people in the companies if they have a Kelly day or a Kelly week um, depending on how that lands and if they can trade you don't have to miss but maybe one shift um, to get really good intense help um, so that you know it's like you said Dave what other resources do we have locally that we can get people into that they don't have to miss a bunch of work and maybe we can hit the reset button a little bit, get some small successes through some local, maybe we get complete success, but at the very least, we get some small wins. They see it's possible. And then it's going to be maybe more realistic for them to make a deeper commitment at that point. Yeah, for sure. Um, so it's, that's why it's really important for us as uh, wellness folks to partner with our local mental health agencies or our EAP. So in Columbus, again, we're very lucky. We have an in-house EAP that's been uh, very robust and they're 100% our allies and they go out into the community and find the right resources for our people. So we have our master's level clinicians right in house kind of doing that vetting for us. 100% um, spoiled here. So I'm 100% jealous. <laughs> but you know, we, uh, we don't know everything. It's not a perfect system and we partner with all of central Ohio and, and sometimes beyond because I know we don't, we're not going to turn anyone away, but we help a lot of people, uh, especially Lisa Callender and her team at EAP, man, um, very non-traditional. They're, they're out there training other departments even. She's um, amazing. Yeah. And then, um, you know, we talk about not Ohio specific, but first responders bridge is a great um, thing that I want to make sure Brandon knows about that folks from uh, Indy can come over and, and get into that program. That's good to know. Yeah, that's uh, I didn't know about that, actually. Yeah, so I don't know if, Jim, you could put the links up with the show notes or something like that. 
firstrespondersbridge.org. It's a free weekend for a first responder and a loved one. Uh, a weekend retreat, they do it three times a year. It's great food, it's great community. Um, it's a very light, easy touch and an opening to what wellness looks like for first responders. I think the interesting thing, Dave, because I ended up doing that in July. Mm -hmm. I remember hanging out with you a little bit there because you came yeah. back there as well. Um, it's something for your spouses. Yeah. Like it's really an opportunity for your spouses to get kind of a behind the scenes of why you act the way you act. Like, you know, a lot of us don't ever say anything to our spouses. We don't tell them what happened, nothing. We hide it. And then we have all these other reactions. We, we want to leave, we, you know, we get anger, there's triggers everywhere. And they just, they have, they don't understand. And so I thought the first responder bridge was amazing as far as showing my wife the why I do things like I do. There was, I've never seen anything else better than that for our spouses and things got a lot better after that. Yeah. The, I mean, who's the first responder to the first responder? It's our loved ones. It's our partners, our spouses, our, our husbands and wives. So we need to bring them into our community and show them uh, love and support and take them on the journey with us if they Absolutely. want to go. Absolutely. Yeah. It's that awareness, and we don't teach that from the start. Um, not with the spouses. Um, and I know, I know, Dave, you're obviously involved in your with your recruits. I was able to teach my recruits yesterday, and I think that they left better than any other recruit class for my department, as far as just being aware of all this different stuff, what they're getting into, having just being told the truth and, and, and making sure that they're aware of when to get help and how to deal with this stuff. Um, I told them and I meant it, you know, this is the most important class that you're going to have this entire time you're in this recruit school. Everything else is about your citizens and that's great, but this is actually about you and your family. And you may not even have a family. I mean, there's, there's kids in there. <laughs> for kids you know but someday they will yeah they're still part of somebody's family but you're right there's some young folks coming through that uh, that aren't you know really partnered yet that are kind of flying solo but i i still see moms and dads show up to family night with our recruits and i love when that happens yes absolutely well let me ask you this we'll, we'll kind of finish up with this just open it up any advice that you would give any type of wellness leaders. Yeah, I would say the number one thing that you could do is um, declare that you, your members and your agency are going to get the help they need. You don't need to know all the answers, but you can say this is going to happen and then live into that possibility. And just say, hey, look, no one, an example, it sounds like this, no one in the Columbus Division of Fire will commit suicide because we have the right resources in place. And then you just build that out. It starts with a statement. It starts with declaration saying it will happen. So it's all in languaging. If we say it will happen, it will happen. We did it to our kids, right, as parents? Why? Because I said so. <laughs> we're going to be well because we said so, but then you got to, then you got to back that language up with action. So that's the first thing I would say is, Hey, start saying it, start normalizing it, <coughs> remove those barriers, that stigma. That's my first thought, Brandon. I'm sure you got some too. Yeah, I know. I could put you guys on the spot with that. No, that's fine. I, I mean, I think what we've already discussed, I would put back up there that you take on a lot in this role, whether you're the leader or you're a peer on a team. Uh, you take on all the things that you've been through uh, on the job and off the job. I think that's something that, that we're all privy to, that we recognize among the three of us, that 
it's the thing underneath the thing sometimes that is really the issue. It's not always what's happened on the job, but being aware that it's okay to struggle and that if you are struggling, it's okay to get help. It's not going to destroy your program. If you say, I need to go somewhere and get assistance, your program will hold up and probably be stronger for it. It's the biggest thing I can say. And I, I was guilty of it. I put it off, put it off, put it off uh, until my spouse finally asked me, why are you so mad all the time? Uh, and it hit home. It's like, wow, I, I am. I have, I have changed because I can't let anything out of my control. And as a leader, I should have known better. Having walked however many other people through that process, I should have known better. But I didn't until somebody called me out on it. And then it was time to get help. And it was scary. And it was a good thing, though. I don't know how many people I had helped get residential treatment, get into IOPs, whatever it may be. I never appreciated the terror that those people must have felt going to the airport to get on a plane, quite like I did when I drove to Hillsboro, Ohio, and sat outside on a country road waiting to go in to save a warrior, and how scared I was for a 72-hour program, let alone a 30-plus day program. It was humbling, and I needed to see that, but I also needed the help. Um, listen to people. If they, if they tell you that you've been angry or you seem like you're struggling, pay attention to that as a leader. Um, it's really important that we listen to the people who love us because they're not going to get into that conversation with us just for the fun of it. <laughs> so listen to that and get help. It's okay. Wow. Great, great words, Brandon. Uh, me too. I was me on. Too. Yeah, I, was <laughs> I was waiting leader. to say that. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. Right. So I was a leader on our peer team, a co-coordinator of the team. And my wife was like, dude, you're not right. Something's wrong. Go get yourself fixed. And then I, of course, I didn't get help right away. <laughs> Denial, shame. Um, but that was the start of my journey and I needed that. That's why accountability is so important to me because it took someone else to say, hey, you're not right. And then uh, I felt the same terror <laughs> crossing that threshold into, into that program, but it was worth it. Uh, and it helps me get others connected because I, I have been in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. So then other folks, uh, agency leaders, uh, chiefs, when people come to you and say, I'm hurt, I need help, I need a break, please believe them. That's my ask out of this show. Please believe them. There's a lot of uh, pain out there. We're working our people to the bone. Staffing is short everywhere. A lot of overtime. Our folks need a break sometimes. So please allow for that to happen. More great advice. Thank you. I would just say, Try not to make this, try your best not to make this your identity. I could tell you, I got burnt with that pretty bad because when it comes down to it, we are not in control of our positions. Everything we work towards, everything we put together can be taken away at any second. And I know when that happened to me, I took that hard and it helped with the spiral I was already working on spiraling down. So try your best not to just make it your identity. You're a lot more than just a peer support coordinator, a wellness coordinator, whatever it may be. There's a lot more that you can offer, even if you're not in that position. So I would just say, be careful because at any time, I, it makes me think of, uh, oh, I'm going to, for you, Brandon, I'll, I'll talk about Rudy. You know, he's, he's promised to dress his senior year and then the coaches change and that promise is worthless. Yeah. So you just never know what's going to happen. So just, just be careful, do what you can do with all your heart, but just make sure that you don't make that your everything. Yeah, I'd say as wellness leaders and also as uh, first responders, like we really, we can wear the shirts, we can have all the patches and the badges and it's our identity. I, I me too, again, Jim, I fell into that, um, that trap where I was my job. And then when I didn't like my job anymore, I didn't like me and man, the bottom fell out. So once I uncoupled identity from self, 
our identity from job, remove those two things, huge, huge growth for me. And that was very helpful. So, yep. Thank you, Jim. Yeah. All right. Well, I think it's been a good hour or so. Uh, I appreciate you guys coming on here and sharing all this knowledge and, and hopefully whoever may be listening, whoever may be coming up will actually listen to this and they'll learn from our mistakes and be better off for that. They won't have to go through it themselves. So again, thank you, Brandon. Thank you, Dave. I love both of you so much. You've helped love me you too, out brother. tremendously. And uh, I'm just, as Dave said, I'm grateful for you guys. <laughs> Same. Love you, Jim. Love yeah. you, Brandon. You guys are awesome. Keep doing the work. Yeah. All love right. you both. Thank you. So he's Brandon, he's Dave, and I'm Jim, and we are out of time. <laughs>